This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. As we have been reporting, the possibility that the COVID-19 virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan is now getting a thorough second look. Is there a possible Canadian connection? The Conservatives are demanding that the Public Health Agency of Canada release more information about the links between Canada's National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is being investigated as the possible source of the virus. Two scientists at the Canadian lab, Zhang Guo Chu and her husband, Ketting Chang, were fired in 2019 after CSIS asked for their security clearances to be revoked. According to the Globe and Mail, these scientists in the special pathogens unit at the Winnipeg lab had worked with the Chinese military, with Chinese military researchers on infectious diseases such as Ebola, Lassa fever, and Rift Valley fever. The public health agency has handed heavily redacted documents to the Commons Canada-China Relations Committee, which conservatives consider a, quote, deeply troubling cover-up. For more on this, I'm joined by Conservative MP and Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, Michael Chong. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here today. Well, uh, what are you looking for in terms of looking for a connection between the Winnipeg lab, which was a very high-level security lab, and uh, the Wuhan lab? Well, it starts with President Biden last week uh, issuing a statement indicating that he had ordered uh, U.S. intelligence agencies uh, to investigate um, two likely theories on the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, President Biden indicated that there are two likely theories as to how this whole global pandemic started. One is that a human uh, came in contact with an infected animal and got the virus that way. And that started the global pandemic. The other likely theory is that there was a lab accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, The reason, uh, so the president has ordered that uh, intelligence agencies uh, should take 90 days and report back to him in late August as to which of the two theories is most likely. Uh, If it turns out that the U.S. government concludes that it likely came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology in an accident, then the role the Canadian government's lab in Winnipeg played in helping uh, set up that lab in Wuhan, in helping collaborate with that lab in Wuhan, in helping train scientists and technicians there becomes a really important question. And that's why we are asking why these two Canadian government scientists were fired from Winnipeg and asking whether or not the government uh, will be providing uh, assistance to U.S. investigators as they try to trace the source of this coronavirus Well, the Globe and Mail is reporting that they had collaborated with Chinese military researchers. Uh, I didn't see anything about, are you suggesting that they actually set up the Wuhan lab? They, I'm not suggesting it. We know the following. We know that Dr. Chu from the Winnipeg lab took at least five trips uh, to China for virus research in a two-year period alone in 2017 and 2018. Many of those trips were to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We also know that Dr. Chu helped to train lab technicians and scientists there to a level four standard, which is the standard of uh, labs around the world where they can handle the most dangerous viruses and pathogens. Uh, we know that at least seven scientists from the Winnipeg lab collaborated with scientists from China, including, as you've mentioned, with scientists from China's military. Uh, and we know that at least one scientist from China's military actually was granted access to the Winnipeg lab and worked in the Winnipeg lab for a period of time, which appears to be contrary 
to government security policy. So those are all the things we know. We know. For sorry, example, sorry. That, that last thing. Where, uh, where do you know that from? Where, where was uh, the Globe that? And, the Globe and Mail has reported uh, that last fact that a, uh, a scientist from China's military, uh, Fei Yu Yen, uh, from the People's Liberation Army, was uh, granted access to the Winnipeg lab to work there for a period of time. Um, you know, these are very disturbing revelations. There's clearly been breaches of national security, which is why uh, Dr. Chu and Dr. Cheng were escorted out of the lab by the RCP and subsequently fired in January of this year. We don't know, though, exactly what and why they were fired. We don't know exactly the totality of the collaboration between the Winnipeg lab and uh, Chinese military scientists and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And these are the questions we're asking that the government is refusing to answer. Uh, what is the reasoning? So you've been dealing, trying to get these documents, both from the public health agency and uh, from the federal government. So Justin Trudeau has warned uh, that that uh, your demands could lead to anti-Asian racism. Well, that's, that is highly irresponsible of the Prime Minister to suggest that. He's hiding behind accusations of racism uh, in order to cover this up, and it is beyond the pale for him to do that. You know, as a, as a Canadian of Asian descent myself, I have been subject firsthand to anti-Asian racism and discrimination. And for him to use this as a shield uh, to defend himself against the government's breaches of national security at their Winnipeg lab is is reprehensible. Uh, you know, we have to do two things at once. We must do two things at once. We must fight anti-Asian racism against our fellow Canadian citizens. And at the same time, we have to hold the communist leadership in Beijing, in China, accountable for the threats that they are presenting to our citizens, uh, to our companies, uh, and to our values. You know, they've they've wrongfully detained Two Canadians now for over two years, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. Nine hundred and four days. That's right, and they have put another Canadian, uh, Robert Schellenberg, on death row. They've, you know, the whereabouts of Hussein Jalil, another Canadian, is completely unknown for, and they've detained him for almost two decades now. They've, they have, uh, they're threatening uh, Canadians here in the Asian community, pro pro Hong Kong democracy activists, uh, students on university campuses. Uh, who are protesting their treatment, uh, the, the Chinese government's treatment of the Uyghur Muslim minority and and its treat its crackdown in Hong Kong, and the list goes on. And so we have to we have to counter these threats, and at the same time we have to fight against Asian anti Asian discrimination. And so for the Prime Minister to conflate the two is beyond the pale. Uh- what do you think then the reason for hiding uh, or for not releasing this information is? Do you think that it has something to do with ongoing, we hope, negotiations to release the two Michaels? No, I don't think the two issues are connected at all. Uh, the issue of the national security breaches at the Winnipeg lab and the wrongful detention of Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spaver. I don't believe that the two cases are at all connected. Um, I think the government is trying to cover this up because it demonstrates that they were asleep at the switch in defending Canada's national security, in protecting the safety and security of Canadians. The fact that these two government scientists were fired in January of this year demonstrates that. We need to get to the bottom of this so that we can prevent these kind of breaches from happening again in the future. And... Uh in terms of the Wuhan lab theory, uh, where are you on that? Are just waiting for the information? I'm anticipating uh, President Biden's report at the end of August. Um, the U.S. is using its uh, its resources to try to get to the bottom of which of the two theories is most likely. Um, and I'm anticipating that report. If it turns out that the lab leak from that a lab leak a lab accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology is the most likely theory, then I think governments around the world need to uh, take a look at their oversight of these CL4 level 4 uh, microbiology laboratories and need to ensure that there's a great deal more oversight and control 
of these labs in order to ensure that these kinds of accidents don't happen again in the future. Mm -hmm. What about the level of non-transparency from the Chinese government? Well, exactly. And it also, it also, I think, me, if it turns out that the uh, epidemic, the pandemic started uh, with the lab accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, I think it's clear to me that we should not be collaborating with, uh, with a Chinese lab like that, that has such sloppy standards. Um, and that we should be, we shouldn't be cooperating uh, in any way on that kind of research with a government that refuses to be open and transparent about um, you know their lab- laboratory work and and their virus research. So where are you at on this? Do you anticipate uh, any success in trying to get this information? So we uh, earlier this year, uh, the special committee on Canada China relations issued two orders to the government uh, to produce these documents. The government has ignored both of those orders. And yesterday, we took the matter to the House of Commons as a whole, and we were successful in having uh, an order of the House adopted uh, to put the full force and weight of the House of Commons behind the order, uh, demanding that the government produce these documents by the end of this week. So we're anticipating uh, and hoping that they will comply with this order, seeing that it has the full weight of the House of Commons behind it, and... Uh, you know, when we get the documents, we're going to be responsible uh, in using them. We've put in place provisions to ensure that uh, no information injurious to national security or any details related to an ongoing criminal investigation are made public. Okay. Michael Chong, MP and Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Okay, we are going to continue this conversation with an expert in security and international affairs, Dr. Stephanie Carvin. Uh, But first, Dr. Carvin, you have a special shout out to a special listener. I do. So my dad is a big fan of the show and it's his 70th birthday. And so, you know, China is important. You know, coronavirus is important, but the most important thing for me today is my dad's 70th birthday. So happy birthday, Dad. We all love you. Okay, well, just... uh, Happy birthday Well, I hope that gets you some uh, good daughter points. I hope I hope I'm first in the will now. That's for sure. <laughs> okay, uh, to the serious matters next. U.S. President Joe Biden ordered American officials to investigate whether the pandemic was the result of a lab leak, as we've been saying. After American intelligence agencies reported that some researchers at that lab in Wuhan fell ill in November 2019, before any of the cases associated with that wet market. Now, the experts have speculated that a, quote, gain-of-function experiment that make viruses more deadly may have led to the creation of the virus, uh, which then leaked to the general population. And not to mention that the bats, uh, that they haven't found the bats that were originally thought to be the source of the infection, and those bats are a thousand miles away from Wuhan. So let's delve into all of this with Dr. Stephanie Carvin, who is the Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University. So uh, where are we at this? It's starting to look more and more plausible, if not likely. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is why it's good that we are actually going to have, like, you know, intelligence agencies kind of go back and look at what happened. I think you know, when you have events like this, uh, you know, it, we have seen a number of conspiracy theories about it. You know, we've seen that, you know, ideas kind of promulgated by, you know, countries like Russia, that coronavirus uh, is caused by 5G and all these other kinds of things. So I think trying to have an explanation into this is important. Unfortunately, uh, this is where the World Health Organization has let us let us down. They have tried to conduct some investigations, but at the same time, um they were clearly not really willing to criticize China 
China, of course, has not been particularly transparent about this. Uh, they really waited a long time in order to grant uh, the World Health Organization, the committee that was established to try and get to the bottom of all, all this, any access whatsoever. So what we're going to have now is uh, the U.S. intelligence apparatus, which is very, very large, much larger than Canada, now can do some kind of study into what happened, which Again, I think it's important. This thing has disrupted us. It's going to disrupt us for a full 18 months, and it's been hard on everybody. So having some answers to this, I do think, is important. But it, it is far from certain that the you know there'll be any kind of definite conclusion. Well, uh, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that come out, and I've seen a bunch of mea culpas, and, and I have to put my hands up, too, is that this was originally dismissed as a conspiracy th- uh, theory, uh, partly because it came from the mouth of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, that may have played a role in it. The man um, telling you to inject bleach, um, <laughs> yeah. telling you how the virus started, probably doesn't uh, go that well. But, you know, um, for lack of a better term, a broken clock is right twice a day. Um, so the, the thing is... Um, I think part of the issue was uh, there was some debate in the early days as to whether or not this was a man-made virus that was deliberately leaked and things like this. Um, the theories that were coming out now, um, and again, I don't have any particular insight, but seem to be a little bit more nuanced. That um, We know, for example, the Wuhan lab um, has had a number of mishaps in recent years. There's been allegations about the safety regimes at various Chinese um, labs of this nature. And there, there is more than, than just the Wuhan lab. And, of course, uh, we have seen the, um, I believe, uh, you know, some, some flus in the past have escaped from different labs around the world. So it's not like this is the realm of science fiction. This is, these are things that have actually happened in the past. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, that may have been one of the reasons why, why people dismissed it. Perhaps there were in, uh, early intelligence briefings to Donald Trump, and he happened to, I don't know, tweet it out somehow. But, um, you know, I think a rigorous study, trying to just at least collect the information that we have and, and to release to the public is important just for the sake of transparency. It's also my understanding that in previous cases where there was an animal source, the animal source was discovered and it didn't take that long to do so. Uh, that, um, well, I mean, again, in the early days, it was believed that it was this wet market outside of the Wuhan law, uh, like in Wuhan. Um, and yeah, I, I don't, um, that is definitely the case. I'm not, uh, like, they, they call that zoonotic transmission when you have someone who, you know, when you have an animal. Uh, there's actually a report this week, which is, you know, news I just did not need, that there was the case of a, uh, someone getting a, a bird flu from a chicken yes. through, through this kind of zoonotic um, transmission, although the, the reports suggest that this wasn't a particularly uh, contagious way of getting it. But, you know, again, this is news from China, so, oh, dear. Um, but the, uh, that's zoonotic transmission. So, yeah, I believe in other cases. And then what you find is that they'll often go into these markets and, and or areas where these animals have been in contact with humans and then destroy all the animals. Uh, you're right. That hasn't happened in this particular case, and that is serious. Yeah, and uh, and the bats that everybody was looking to, apparently uh, their habitat, uh, it's a thousand miles from Wuhan. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't, uh, I mean, I can tell you all about national security. I can't tell you that much about bats. But um, I think these are the kinds of questions that people are going to be looking at. I think what also the intelligence agencies in the United States will be looking at is, you know, satellite photos. Do they have photos of the lab? Did they notice? You know, if they go back and look, can they see various, um, you know, patterns of traffic or movement or buildings or structures or the movement of people in these areas as early as 2019 that they can, that, that may hint that something else was, was happening other than perhaps the official Chinese narrative. So I think it's not just looking for bats. I think one of the things you're going to be looking at are, you know, can you go back and discover were there orders of metal, medical equipment? you know, in suspicious um, amounts that predate the kind of official announcement of the, that there was some kind of uh, virus that was now emerging. Is there some kind of indication uh, or, you know, were there some kind of increase in traffic signals, um, uh, classified communications, things like this? Are there human sources that uh, the, uh, you know, allied intelligence agencies can talk to that may have some information about what really went down? These are all, all very difficult things to get in China. It's, uh, you know, a fairly heavily surveyed society. But I would imagine that 
this is the kind of information that will be providing um, the basis upon which the intelligence community can make its assessment. How, what do you make of uh, the Conservatives' demand for more information about these two Winnipeg scientists who were fired? Uh, and I, Go ahead. Oh, sir, I was just listening to the Chong interview before I came on. And, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what he's saying. I think there's fundamentally a lot of questions. Also, you know, the reporter Stephen Chase, has, um, with the Globe and Mail, whose reports you referenced, he has noted that, um, you know, this has gone from, oh, there was a policy breach to, no, this, this was a full-on security incident. And we never really had a good explanation for that. That being said, I'm a little concerned about the conservative demand for all of the highly classified intelligence. Um, we don't know how the actions of these two individuals became known to Canadian authorities. It may be highly classified, extremely sensitive allied information. And just kind of dumping that out on the common floor is not without risk. We have an institution that is built to deal with these questions, but the Conservatives don't want to use it. And that institution is the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. The allegation is that it's a partisan body, that, you know, it won't produce an honest result. I don't actually think that's the case. I don't know how much your listeners want me to get involved into the um, joys of national security review and oversight. But basically what this is, is... um, you know, they're demanding access to all the classified information, and I don't think that's necessarily appropriate. I think that, you know, we have bodies that can review that information and report back to the Canada-China Committee. And um, But that's not to say that the questions that the Conservatives are asking are inappropriate. I just maybe have some issues with how they want to go about it. Right. So, uh, I mean, are you saying that maybe they should get some information? Absolutely. And I mean, like, look, I think a deal needs to be struck here. Um, you know, Patty Haidu has not helped herself. She said some kind of bizarre things about China um, in the last 16 months that honestly oh, yeah. have me shaking my head. Um, but, you know, so I don't think that the questions that they're asking are, are wrong. I think they should get some some of the information, some of the emails. But, I, you know, the National Microbiology Lab is a classified institution uh, for a reason. I think there's real questions that, you know, like, why were people from the Chinese military in that lab? That's a great question. Where was the departmental security officer? What was that person doing? Um, but that being said, um, when it comes to how, you know, CSIS became aware of this information, whether it was through their own human sources, signals, intelligence, or allied information, these are very, very sensitive things. And to just kind of grant access or dump it on the floor of the House of Commons could actually injure Canadian national security further. So I, I, that's why I'm just a little bit sensitive with how we're going about this, but that's not to say the questions being asked are wrong. And I do think the Liberal government should and can be much more forthcoming than they are. Well, uh, you alluded to this, but both the Prime Minister and Patty Haidu on another occasion when asked about the Chinese government's action, you know, have said that's a racist comment. Yeah, I mean, two minds about this. One is, like, we have to acknowledge that this conversation is taking place at a time when we've seen a 717% increase of hate crimes against Asians in Absolutely. In I, I acknowledge that. But yeah, no, to ask questions about, you know, the actions of the Chinese government um, and their involvement in Canadian labs generally is not a racist question, in my view. And it was a, it was an odd remark um, to be made, for sure. And, that, and that's, like, part of the problem here is that, like, there does... Like I said, at first, like describing this as a policy incident and then secondly, describing it as a, you know, now a national security incident and then asking questions about it is racist. Is not, like, none of these are, are really satisfying answers. And I think it's just providing more ammunition to the conservatives. So we would be much better off if we could have some kind of compromise whereby, say, the heavily classified stuff went to the you know proper review body that could then provide an assessment to the Canada-China Committee, but then also that the Canada-China Committee should be allowed to see a lot of the other emails, because not every email is going to be classified top secret. Um, there just hasn't been a lot going on that can provide us uh, good answers. And so far, as we can tell, these two individuals have not been uh, arrested by the RCMP or charged with any crimes. Uh, I don't know if that's forthcoming, but we also want to make sure that any investigation by Parliament doesn't actually hurt our ability to bring charges against these two individuals in the future, 
if they have, in fact, broken the law. Hmm. Uh, fascinating topic. And of course, we will be following it. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Carvin. And again, happy birthday to your dad. Thank you so much. That's a real honor. We appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Cheers. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, it could be like a political revolution in Israel, the end of the Bibi Netanyahu era, though uh, it's not over until it's over. We will be talking about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. A momentous political change is underway in Israel, and this could be the end of the tenure of the country's longest-serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Last night, his political opponents formed an historic coalition that could see his ouster from the leadership position in the coming days. The coalition is made up of eight parties, some of whom are the strangest of bedfellows, and its assent has to be ratified in Parliament, where it has apparently the slimmest of margins, 61 to 59. It's fascinating, but the real question is, does this mark an important change in direction, or are politicians just fed up with the guy at the top? He's on trial for corruption, and this comes after four deadlocked elections. So let's go to Professor Dan Avnon, Chair of the Department of Political Science at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Professor Yael Aronoff, who is the Serling Chair in Israel Studies at Michigan State University. Thank you for joining us, and welcome. Hello. Hi. Uh, Hello from Israel. Okay, let's begin with Don Avnon in Israel. Uh, I is is this does this look like it is actually going to unfold? Well, actually, I liked your opening line. It ain't over till it's over. <laughs> Israeli politics a week is an eternity. It will take a, a, at least a week before Parliament votes on this, and um, it is fragile and. Uh, coalition actually has a week to show that despite being only 61, they are 61, strong and steady and able to move ahead. It is not, it's not clear that it will happen, but the prospects, the interest, the things to gain and lose uh, make one uh, predict cautiously that it will happen. But it's going, it's still Netanyahu and his allies are doing everything they can to get the 61 under 60, which means to try to chip away at this very slim majority, which would then mean that the parliament may have to disperse and call for new elections. So the two options are the government, this new coalition government, or new elections. And um, I think it's 60-40 in favor of a new government. Uh, Dr. Aronoff, do you agree? Yes, I do, and it, it seems uh, likely, but certainly not determined, that, that we'll have a new government. And in terms of the question that you posed at the end, it, it seems like it was primarily um, to just oust Netanyahu, uh, that he's just alienated so many and um, lied to many people <laughs> in, in terms of uh, too many times to lose the confidence of people that he can actually um, fulfill the promises that he makes to them for any future coalition uh, in terms of the coalition that was made with Benny Gantz, that he would become prime minister now and that that was thwarted um, as well, that, that Bennett and others just couldn't, I think, um, believe his promises that he would make in terms of um, what he would do to, to appease them in a coalition. Well, so I think there was a very much an anti-Netanyahu um, uh, interest that brought all these diverse parties together. Um, and and there will be, to some extent, not dramatic change given the huge differences in ideology. But on the other hand, there could be some changes made in terms of um, furthering uh, Jewish uh, uh, and Arab equality within Israel and helping uh, Bedouin communities in the Negev, perhaps, um, making some leeway into um, loosening the power of the ultra-Orthodox, since there are no ultra-Orthodox parties in the government, 
and uh, hopefully, you know, just uh, Netanyahu is becoming fighting for a survival kind of erratic. So in some extent, and un- unpredictable, even though he was generally risk averse. So uh, now that can be averted and hopefully there'll be some calm and that even though uh, Bennett is kind of to the right of Netanyahu in terms of his positions against the two-state solution for annexation, that his parties in the coalition will really restrain him and hopefully there'll be some calm in the next couple of years before Lapid can take over, hopefully, and make some progress and some movement and leaving the door open for a two-state solution. Okay, well, Professor Avnon, so uh, first of all, I mean, even the 6159 still reflects uh, in society, in Israeli society, that that it's it's deeply split. Uh, so how do you think the general public sees the possible ouster of Netanyahu? Well, first of all, let's look at the numbers. It's 61-53. Because of the 59-6 in our okay. party, they are definitely against Netanyahu. So the, the block of votes for Netanyahu are 53, not 59, which matters in terms of, you know, the prospects. Number two, the general public for the past two years has gone four times to the election and every time voted a majority of representatives who do not want Netanyahu in power. Number two, very significant, in addition to what Dr. Arnoff just mentioned, is that Israel has not had a state budget for two years. We, the public services, which ordinary citizens, right and left, Jews, Arabs, Orthodox, secular, doesn't matter, are experiencing uh, deterioration of public services that governments provide on the basis of state budgets, and we haven't had a budget since 2019. So there's also this element. It's clear that uh, anti-Bibi Netanyahu sentiment is what keeps this uh, coalition together, but there is a public sentiment saying, hey, we need trains, we need buses, we need airports functioning, we need public welfare, we need education. And, um, and, and this is also a very significant factor which is keeping this coalition together and which also raises great hopes among the civic body in Israel, which is above, this hope is above the ideological issues that have been referred to. Yeah, because uh, the coalition, as I said, has eight parties. Some of them are right. Some of them are left. We have an Arab party, not not the first time that it's been in government, but uh, it, it, it certainly has more clout this time. And uh, the the intended prime minister, Naftali Bennett, is to the right of Netanyahu, and, and he's religious, though not ultra-Orthodox, Dr. Aronoff, I mean, what are the chances of that staying uh, together? Yeah, sorry, and just to clarify, it's actually the first time, so it's uh, dramatic in that sense that um, an Arab party is in the coalition government. That's the first time in Israeli history. We've had, of course, um, Arab um, members of Knesset um, who weren't part of Arab parties who were in um, the government, but not uh, an Arab party. So that is a pretty uh, dramatic difference, and that hopefully, given the uh, increased tensions within Israel over the past month, that perhaps this could be an opportunity um, to reduce those tensions and, and work towards uh, together in a more collaborative way. So who knows if this government will last. On average, a lot of governments have lasted less than two years, and uh, there's certainly going to be a lot of pressures on the government. But for um, some of those reasons my colleague outlined, um, I think there's a lot of interest in trying to hold it together for all the things that need to be done inside the country uh, and, um, and, and the fear of having yet a fifth election and maybe some of those parties um, doing worse in the next election or um, not being able to be in the government in the next election. So I think there are some interests in trying to hold it together, uh, and I, I'm hoping that they will. Dr. Uh, Professor Avnon, any is there any impact of, of the recent uh, fighting with Gaza? And, and also, uh, people that I've spoken to in Israel, for them, the most disturbing thing was, was the violence from, uh, you know, between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. Uh, will this al- yes. alleviate that? Well, I, absolutely. I mean, first of all, two things. To your question regarding the recent round of violence, um, 
In Israel, unfortunately, I say this sincerely, unfortunately, we are used to these uh, outbursts of violence, and they are part of our lives here until there is a resolution of the conflict. This is something that does not change, uh, usually doesn't change voting patterns. It just actually solidifies positions. So that didn't make any impact. And it is true that what happened in the streets of Israel, in cities and communities where there are Jewish and Arab uh, neighborhoods in proximity or living within one with the other, uh, there were outbursts of violence which shocked many of us and I think were a, a, a catalyst to this government because the, uh, the Arab party, which is an Islamist party that has joined the coalition, it represents for many um, a kind of a new form of bridging the gap and the new representation of justified uh, demands to invest in uh, Arab communities in a manner that will perhaps calm down, but I, calm down the, the violence that we experience. But also, I must say, coming back to the previous point, that we need uh, a strong gov- we need a stable government, we need a police uh, force that will have to reply to the public for its ability or inability to control uh, the streets and to maintain public order, and this is in a way, is also a response to those uh, clashes in our streets where it seemed like we're in anarchy, where neighbors were uh, going one against the other. Uh, People were coming in from other communities in order to incite uh, against either Jews or Arabs, whatever the case may be, and the police were not to be seen. And that really struck very deep nerves here, and it is one of the reasons, Not there are many, many, but if you're asking about the immediate past, this actually propelled um, some of the right-wing politicians, strengthened their commitment to overcome past prejudices and to work together across the political spectrum just to stabilize our system, stabilize our government, put aside uh, deep ideological differences regarding uh, territories, occupation, um, peace, things that usually our international friends are more sensitive to, and just, you know, go back to some sense of normalcy from where we can return to the bigger questions. Uh, final question for Dr. Aronoff. Uh, so th- the question is, um, in terms of Netanyahu, if uh, he is ousted, will he stay in opposition? And also, how does this affect his corruption trial? Uh, he de- definitely will uh, not be. We'll be hearing more from him than us in the United States have been hearing from Trump. There's been a real quiet in terms of not seeing or hearing from Trump when he was so visible every single day for four years. Whereas um, with Netanyahu, he's going to be very vocal and very uh, visible as uh, in the opposition and uh, waiting to, um, to to hope and that he may be able to run again and and have another turn again. But I think this. Um, could possibly um, be uh, the end of his um, career as prime minister. And certainly, although his trials can drag on for years, um, there's a, still a possibility that he'll end up in, in jail someday. And so he's had an enormous influence on Israel. Um, and uh, uh, But increasingly, he's been out for his own uh, personal survival to get out of jail um, and, and stay in power um, in order to get out of jail partially. So I think this was detrimental um, uh, in the end, and um, and you'll have to focus on these trials. But we haven't we haven't heard the end of it. Yeah, we'll be hearing a very vocal opposition from him. Okay. Well, we watch and we wait. It's fascinating as it unfolds. Thank you so much, Professor Yael Aronoff and Professor Dan Avnon. Thank you. And Thank good you. Luck to all of us. We are going to take another break, and when we come back, a local issue of interest to a lot of people, and that is the new guidance for people who got a first shot of AstraZeneca released this morning. We'll get the details on that, and let me give you the numbers, because I'm sure that our listeners have questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Again, we'll be talking to... 
Justin Bates from the Pharmaceutical Association of Ontario. And uh, we'll be talking about what's the drill for people who had a first dose of AstraZeneca. The good news, the second dose is going to come at the optimal time when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Timer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have some late-breaking guidance on the rollout of second doses for people who had a first shot of AstraZeneca. And that will be offered at the optimal 12-week interval for that vaccine, rather than unfolding by age. And there will be a choice of scenes now that mixing doses has been okayed. So the big question is, how do you get yours? Uh, what is the procedure, the numbers to call? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Hi, Justin. Hi, great to be back on. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Well, this is very good news. It is. It's like, hold on to your seat every day. We seem to be getting evolving information, uh, much of it positive in terms of getting more people vaccinated. But uh, yeah, it does uh, become very challenging for everyone to keep up on uh, the newest information. Okay, so a lot of people got their first AstraZeneca dose in a pharmacy. And the first part of the guidance is uh, that the best thing as of tomorrow, you can call your pharmacist where you received this and get an appointment at 12 weeks, correct? That's correct, yes. So pharmacies have uh, been receiving a new batch of AstraZeneca supply as of last night into today and tomorrow. So they will be ready. Those that were participating in the initial launch back in March, there was over 325 pharmacies in the three regions of Toronto, Kingston and Windsor. So those pharmacies will have replenishment when that's where people would have received the vaccine in March. And then each week we're going to replenish additional pharmacies outside of those regions when we hit the eligibility mark of 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. And what about Pfizer doses? How many drugstores now have uh, Pfizer? So we have uh, just under 2,400 that have uh, been onboarded into the program with an mRNA vaccine. Um, the about half of them have uh, the Pfizer and half have Moderna. So on the government website, you can actually filter to see which ones have AstraZeneca for second doses, which one have Pfizer specifically and Moderna, because they, they won't have both uh, the, the mRNA. They'll have one plus the AstraZeneca on supply. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's good to hear that, uh, first of all, the AstraZeneca's the AstraZeneca supply that they now have is is not the short-dated one. It's a new batch. That's right. So even though the shelf life was expanded to an additional month of uh, two lot numbers, which we were working frantically over the last uh, weekend to ensure there was no wastage, most of that's already gone. Um, the good news is, is that there was high demand leading into Monday, May 31st, so not much was left over regardless of the extension. And uh, the new batch that has been delivered today uh, and tomorrow uh, is dated to the end of August. So there's uh, a runway there and uh, people don't need to be concerned about that. And what have you found or are you finding, uh, I mean, I had I had a first shot of AstraZeneca and I my thought was, I'm going to take whichever one comes up first. But it does look like there will be a choice now. What are you, uh, what kind of questions are you getting from people on that note? Mm-hmm. So we are hearing lots of questions about, you know, what the efficacy is between, say, an AstraZeneca and going to an mRNA, be it Moderna or Pfizer. Is it safe? Is it effective? What's in the best interest of me as an individual, and you know, the, the short answer is it's safe and effective. Um, you know, there's different studies out there. One from Spain. There's UK studies that show, uh, in some cases, you could get a bump in in efficacy by switching, um, but you may you may actually experience some additional side effects. Um, nothing too severe, but uh, more of uh, some of the typical things you would expect uh, in a mild and moderate uh, symptom. So. 
you know, there's different things to consider. Others uh, are concerned about mixing um, and they don't want to be quote unquote guinea pigs to going from a viral vector like AstraZeneca to an mRNA. So it's really an individual choice. There will be consent required um, to mix the dose so that you understand that risk and benefit. Um, so I think it's going to be a myth. It'll be interesting to see. I think there's lots of people that want to stick with the AstraZeneca uh, and uh, we'll be able to offer that as a, an option for anybody coming into a pharmacy. What about, uh, you know, a lot of the people who got the first shots of AstraZeneca are in their 60s, but there are also older people who got it. Is the risk of severe or more severe temporary side effects, is, is it worse for older people? Would you have different advice for people in their 70s? Yeah, I don't think the, uh, the studies had shown it was worse for one particular age cohort over another. Uh, and I think it, it, it you know, will depend on even seeing more of this uh, data come out. Um, but I don't think it's anything that should deter somebody from mixing doses. Uh, I think you've got to be comfortable with what uh, the science uh, has now deemed as being safe and effective. Um, but there is that understanding that you could um, see more side effects. Now, what's interesting is people report um, a higher rate of side effects from a second dose of Pfizer versus the first dose. And it's the actually reverse for AstraZeneca. The first dose typically gives you more of some of the uh, anticipated side effects like being nauseous and tired, headaches, things of that nature. Uh, and the second dose of AstraZeneca has less of those um, uh, impacts on, on you. So, you know, it, it, it does vary. Uh, and, of course, individuals will have different reactions. Right. Yeah. I, I know that after I had the shot, I, I felt quite fatigued. That was it. Uh, which I guess is a normal side effect. It is. Yeah. And I also had the AstraZeneca and I did have um, uh, some flu-like symptoms for a couple of days and then, and then I was fine. So, and I think the, you know, the concerns around the messaging with AstraZeneca have a lot of people questioning whether or not to get the second dose. I would say that even, even if you look at the a low risk of getting a blood clot, the VITT, you know, when you look at the second dose, that risk is even further reduced to one in 300,000 um, versus uh, the one in 60,000 that we've seen more recently of the first dose. So if your immune system has already reacted to the first dose, there's really uh, no significant risk to speak of for a second dose. So I think people can feel confident in either choice. Um, and at least this gives people options uh, to consider. Interesting, you know, at the beginning of the week when second doses opened up for people over 80, we've been hearing from a lot of people over 80 that the rollout is very different across the province. So a lot of people in Toronto, no problem. Uh, Toronto is a hot spot. Peel is a hot spot. But people outside, you know, would spend a long time on the phone only to find that there are no appointments available or you have to go to Toronto to do this. Uh, and they're living in Niagara and kind of on it went. Some people, you know, spend an hour on the phone and they get an appointment that's one day earlier than the original one in July. I'm just wondering if you anticipate similar problems uh, with the supply of second doses in pharmacies, the pharmacies that are not in the hotspots? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and part of that may be a byproduct of the reallocation to hotspots of 50% of the, the vaccine. So you did see some of that uh, impact outside of particularly the GTA, um, where a lot of that vaccine was being targeted to high-risk neighbourhoods. Um, and, and filling some of those gaps, which I think was the, the right decision. Uh, as we normalize across the system now with more supply of Moderna and Pfizer, that should correct itself. Um, one of the challenges pharmacy is going to face is that as we start to wind down some of the mass immunization clinics and people may opt to go into a pharmacy for their second dose, you know, we get back to that supply side challenge, right? And we need more supply and we need a flexible ordering system to ensure that a pharmacy can order exactly what they need based on the demand rather than a set amount every week. Because uh, right now it's still approximately 150 doses per pharmacy per week. So with the second dose potential switching from AZ to an mRNA and then those that might come to a pharmacy that got it elsewhere, 
for a second dose. We're going to need more supply. There's no question uh, that's uh, you know front and center of our discussions with the Ministry of Health. The the um, uh, the the municipal people uh, at the mass vaccination sites have started to say that they're getting a fair number of no shows. Has that been a problem at pharmacies? No, actually, it's the reverse. I think uh, certainly people uh, wanted an early second dose uh, the last week, and and that was a surprise. I must admit, um, when we started to offer the ten week mark uh, with the that expiring batch on May 31st, um, we saw tremendous demand and we only had a third of the supply for the amount of people that actually got the first dose between March 10th and 19th. So that was a strong indication that there's still a significant amount of uh, people that want AstraZeneca as a second dose and we just didn't have enough uh, to get give out. So now that we're in that March 20 and beyond phase of the 12 week. Uh, with the mixing, it'll be interesting to see. But um, we haven't had cancellations. I think the only issue that we've uncovered is, and interestingly enough, it was to do with the mRNA vaccine Moderna. Uh, within the greater Toronto area, there seemed to be um, cancellations and people preferring Pfizer, and which was perplexing to us, given that they're both at the same level from a safety and efficacy standpoint. But I, I think that was more brand recognition more than anything. And the vaccine shopping that we saw did leave uh, some pharmacies with vacancies that had uh, the Moderna vaccine. Because we split it out, uh, that created some challenges. Interesting. So we're almost out of time. What would you like to tell people? Uh, let me just say, if if you had your first dose as of tomorrow, you can call your pharmacy or your doctor's office where you got your first shot and set up a second and then as of Monday, you can make that booking through the provincial website. Uh, what else do people have to know? Yeah, so as of tomorrow, we'll be dropping the age across the province to 70 plus for um, early second dose of an mRNA. So that uh, I think is at 80 now, uh, and that will be at a four-week interval. So I think that's great news. It certainly would encourage government to continue to lower that for an early second dose closer to the product monograph of Optimal for Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, so we can get to the essential workers and some of the other hardest hit um, cohorts of people. Uh, I would say, you know, one of the things we've heard from the public, and I interact with many of them through Twitter and so forth, is that, you know, they called their home pharmacy where they got the first dose and, and they didn't have any supply or weren't ready to book. And, and our overall plan is to make sure all of those pharmacies, some of whom didn't participate in the um, last initiative for an early second dose because we only had a subset of pharmacies with supply, but all of them will have supply today and tomorrow. So encourage people to you know be persistent. Um, in some cases, the pharmacist will reach out uh, and book appointments. In other cases, um, you can go back to that pharmacy. But our plan is to make sure we look after every patient uh, and no one's left behind and that we get everybody their full complement of uh, vaccinations. Justin, we are totally out of time. Thank you so much for this. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. And that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday coming up tomorrow. We will be taking your calls and your questions and your comments then. Uh, So call us back. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.